Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really great to have you here. This time around, I sit down with Jennifer Toms. She's a literature professor at Oakland University, a musician, a songwriter, and an all-around badass. She's one of my oldest and dearest friends as well. We're famous for long and in-depth talks on everything from concerts to colonialism. Here's what one of those sounds like. Let's get into it. Welcome to the What Am I Making podcast. My name is Maddie C. I am your host. It's wonderful to have you here on the show today. I have uh, my friend, my compatriot, my uh, cultural compadre, my sister, Jennifer Toms. Before we get into that, a couple of things. I leave for tour next week. This is unreal to me. First of all, um, Three months ago, this was just like a tiny little fragment of an idea. And with your help and with your belief and um, with so much begging, I have managed to make this thing a reality. And so between the 29th of June and the 15th of July, I will be out across the eastern half of the United States. You can go to phonoforrecords.com slash house hyphen shows to find out more details, to see a full list of dates if you are out there. And interested in what I do, this is this is going to be how I pay the bills. Um, this is huge for me. This is an enormous leap of faith for me and my family, and it would mean so much if you could come out and support this. If you are anywhere in the eastern half of the U.S., take a look at where I'm going to be. Please make sure that you're buying some tickets. Even if you don't buy some tickets, go to phonoforrecords.com slash shop, and you can buy some merch. You can buy a tour T-shirt just for this run of shows. You can buy some old merch from Harbor Coat and the Stick Arounds and the Phonofor label. You can buy music. You can buy tchotchkes. You can buy buttons. You can buy stickers. You can buy all kinds of fun stuff. So please make sure that you're picking some stuff up. That's the way that we keep this train going. Of course, I really need your support over at Substack. It's whatamimaking.substack.com. There's stuff going up every day. Um, I really love it when I hear from all of you, and you guys have been great about that lately. People have been sharing stuff. That is the number one number one way that we find new readers and new listeners is when listeners and readers share things with their friends, either individually or via text or on social media. So please, if you enjoy something that, that happens here, share it. That's the only way that other people are going to find out about it. The show is, of course, powered by your financial support. I can't do this without your paid subscription, so go on over to whatamimaking.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription today. You can do that for as little as 6 bucks a month, or you can become a yearly or a founding member. I do have Venmo and PayPal. Reach out to me at whatamimaking at substack.com or hit me up on the socials. Um, we're still kind of stuck right now at right around 30 paid subscribers, but... Um, we uh, are hoping for more. Uh, again, make sure that you are liking, rating, and reviewing the pod wherever you listen. It's the number one way for this thing to grow. It's especially true if you're listening on Stitcher or uh, Podbean or Apple or Spotify or Amazon, any of those bigger pod providers. 
the number one way they're going to recommend shows for other people is stuff that's being rated and reviewed. The more you interact with it, the more likely it is it's going to find a new audience. All right. So let's get to the reason you're here, other than the commercials for uh, my Substack, my blog, my podcast, the videos I'm working on, all of my music and my touring. Appreciate all your support. But I know that you're here mostly for the guests. And so am I, quite frankly. That's why this show is worth doing. Now, I've introduced Jennifer Toms as my sister on more than one occasion. It's not true, except that it is. Jenny's technically an only child in her birth family, and I have one sister in my birth family. Jenny is nonetheless my sister. Our bond has been forged over a two-decade-long friendship that's built on a shared love of music, cinema, and the beauty of words. Culture is our shared love language. In each other, we found kindred spirits willing to dive equally headlong into heady concepts and boilerplate B-movies alike. It's rare for me to find someone so ravenous for cultural thinking. And in that avenue, in Jenny, I have found a veritable soulmate. Throughout a career in academia and as an independent musician, singer, and songwriter, Jenny has pursued her passions and her curiosities with relentless fervor and discipline. She holds a PhD in English literature, but she's also held her head aloft in the punk band trenches. Her varied viewpoint and unique life experiences make Jenny a fascinating professor and a terribly well-educated bass player. In our chat, we discuss pulling Shakespeare down from his pedestal and deflating the idea of literature with a capital L. From classism to colonialism, we look at how art and culture help to propagate the idea of othering and the catastrophic consequences that can arrive on our society for centuries as a result. We also look at the openness of art and community and how that is much like the openness we have in our own youth. And through the eyes of Jenny's students, we glimpse the beauty of naivete and the thoughtfulness of youth and the glory of not knowing any better than not to. There's even a fairly plausible argument made within here that the local music scene is a little bit like the mafia. So come on inside. Meet my dear friend and my sister, Dr. Jennifer Toms, although I'm fairly certain she would much prefer it if you just called her Jenny. Enjoy. You started you started playing in bands what in high school? Uh no, not until college. Not until college. Not until undergrad. Okay. So how did that come about? Like, where did that love of music come from? Mm-hmm. And why and how did it manifest itself into you finally going, okay, I'm going to be in a band? Well, uh, I was a pretty obsessive singer as a child, for sure. I loved to sing all kinds of songs that drove my parents insane. Lots of John Denver, and lots of Little Mermaid, and lots of Debbie Gibson. And eventually matured into singing a whole bunch of like 10,000 Maniacs and Sundays and this type of thing. And it just kind of coalesced where my um, ex-boyfriend from middle school when who and uh, and I were 
together at the time or getting together. And we had a couple of friends from our, who we also went to middle school with and high school with and formed this goofy ass band called Rhino Star 99. <laughs> and I say goofy only, I should say whimsical. It was a very whimsical band. We had, we didn't really know what we were doing. I didn't play any instruments. I just sang. Um, and we really didn't know chords or notes or anything. Our drummer, Gary, my boyfriend, ex-boyfriend now, obviously, um, who's still a dear friend, um, was a terrific drummer. They were all really good. But again, we were we were kind of flailing and had a really good time and actually were, and, and had a pretty good reputation eventually in Flint. I was going to say, and at, and at that age, if you're not having a really good time, if you're doing it for something more than that, you probably are doing it wrong. Yeah. Like if the success or if some acclaim or whatever comes along, wonderful. Yeah. But you should kind of just be 20, shiny, and dumb. Absolutely. And we were that in spades. We were very, it was a very romantic band in the sense that it was just. In that you romanticized the whole idea of being in a band. Of being in a band. And we were very, very close, um, very, very close just in general. We spent a ton of time together while we were in this band. And so just, just a lot of really pleasant kind of childlike times and memories from that group super that innocent. I really cherish. It's super innocent yeah yeah um yeah i had a conversation recently with uh a guy that i was in a band with the first band that i was ever in um nearly 30 years ago uh-huh. now and he and i were we've kind of reconnected in the last year or year and a half and many of those same folks and i have gotten together and we've talked virtually but the reason I bring this up is he and I were talking because he's working on a podcast about kind of talking to us individually about our experiences and then kind of trying to encapsulate that moment for us as people and then what happens to us after. Yeah. And the thing he and I became so fixated on in our in our discussion when he interviewed me was that it was this idea of we didn't know that we were doing everything wrong. And <laughs> yeah. half the reason the shit that we did that was successful worked is because nobody told us we couldn't. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much how it went. And I think if I went back and listened to the tapes, because that's all we had, um, I think I, it would be a really satisfying experience and a very nostalgic one. And so I have a, a lot of very happy memories of that band. Um, we played our last, we played in Flint primarily, and we played at the Flint local quite a bit. And our last show was there. And we had like decent crowds when we would play, but not, you know, hordes of people or anything. And we were on the kind of quieter, more like spacey end of music for that, a lot of the music that was being played at that venue. And when we Even played, then, I, was that largely a punk club? It was, Yeah. Punk, there was a lot of punk, there was a lot of ska at the time. Okay, and this is this is late 90s, Jenny? This is uh, about mid-90s. Mid-90s. Mid, mid to late 90s, yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, when we played our final show, we kind of let everybody know it was our last one, and all these fucking people, oop. Oh, you can absolutely swear. I don't know if I told you this or not, but this is my podcast. (laughs) Having known me for two full decades, it seems like you would know that that's totally fucking fine with me. I assumed it was okay. (laughs) Fuck yes. So um, all these people showed up. All these like tough ass punk dudes and their tough, tough girlfriends. And they were right up front and it was just, it was wonderful. 
So I really, I wasn't playing an instrument at the time. So I was really focused just on singing. And that was what happened in the, in the next couple of bands after that was I just sang up until Scary Women. So, Right. And um, what did that, I mean, so, so basically you're playing in that, in that flint band, mostly with kind of lifelong friends, sort yeah. of like, sort of like neighborhood kids oh, like, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and then that kind of fizzles out. Um, do you take a break? Is there a break in there or do you like, do you go right to automobile from there? Pretty quickly right from okay. there. Yeah. Okay. And then automobile runs through what the late nineties, oh, early aughts, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was also just a joyous band. Like we just, I still, even though I don't talk with some of the people in, in that band as often as I'd like to, I still feel very, very close to them because we had such a, such an amazing time. And that was also another band that was full of kind of innocence and fun and, you know, it is. Again, some of that is, some of that's just youth. Yeah. You, you know, there's a, there's a shelf life to it. Yeah. There's a, um there's a cynicism or a, a maturity or whatever you mm. want to call it that kind of creeps in. Yeah. Uh, even if you don't, it's not even like I'm, I'm a jaded cynic about the scene. Yeah. It's just you, your, your mindset changes, your yeah. viewpoint changes, you know, you're less shiny and new eyed and, and, and just open to everything. And your goals change too. Like I think when, I was playing in Rhino Star and playing in Automobile and Time Out Your Bleeding, which is one of my favorite band names ever, which I just love. And I have to attribute that to Dan Scully, by the way, Daniel Scully, if you hear this. Uh, you, and, you and David and Daniel have um, <laughs> just a bevy of really great band names. I will, I'll have to ask David to put a, uh, like a post together to explain uh, the name of each one, where it came from, and who yeah. was in the band, and what it sounded like. So I, I, we need to. This is an this is an audio note for us to remember yeah. to give our friend Dave Baldwin uh, some homework. He would remember all of the bands and the dates because we played in several. Dave and I, Dave Baldwin and I, played in several several bands together, and he is absolutely one of my dearest friends. And and that's you know one of the great joys of bands in general is oh, just God. the friendships that absolute even bands that go left at one point like you still have a connection to those people some connections much much stronger than others definitely for sure but um like when scary women broke up uh joel the drummer joel kuiper colonel he was you know my brother i would say and listeners who, who pay attention carefully they they know Joel already. Oh good. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. So Joel and I spend a ton of time together, as do Amy and I, who's the one of the singers and guitar players from Scary Women. And I'm so grateful for that because that was definitely the hardest part of one of the hardest parts of that band, uh, kind of disbanding was the potential to not of not seeing those people as often. Right. And, and we remedied that. Happily. And there's a uh there's a beauty in, in also we were just talking about sort of that jaded cynicism. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a maturity that comes with getting older and realizing I can have both of these things. Yeah. You don't have to be my friend or my bandmate. Right. And I don't have to choose one or the other. Yeah. And then when one thing falls apart, the other thing can continue. Yeah. 
if everybody's just honest and says, I, I'd really like to keep hanging out with you. Sure. Um, and what's really funny is I think for a lot of people who struggle with that kind of emotional transparency, mm-hmm. find a place in music because yeah. it's a way for them to do that without having to be able to come up with those words. Express themselves. And so directly. like I think about like nobody ever says, I can't wait to get in the van and drive to Milwaukee to play to 12 people. <laughs> right. But I know tons of people who are like, I can't wait to get to Milwaukee to go play with Floor Model or with Indonesian yeah. Junk sure, or, sure. you know, with whomever else in whatever else town. Yeah. And the point is you do this even a little bit and you put yourself out there. Uh-huh. You're going to meet these incredible people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The people that I've met playing in bands, I mean, aside from just the people I was you know, in, in bands with, it's just immense. I mean, there's just so many people that, and especially with social media now too. Right. Like there's a lot of people I'm friends with on Facebook who I just had, you know, kind of cross paths with through music and am now close to, and I don't even remember how we met, you know? Right. And it's just, it's, it's really, yeah, the, the community aspect of music, like we were talking about before. Yeah. And um, uh, it's kind of funny because it's almost like this really, kind of wonderful version of the mafia in a way (laughs) because it is like it's a vouching system yeah right like the other day i got a hold of our mutual friend tommy plural yeah and tommy books at the avenue which is kind of the main club in town and you know i have a friend who is hooking me up with one of my shows on my solo tour Mm -hmm. and he's this guy's coming to coming to lansing and detroit in uh, august Oh, nice. And I got a hold of Tommy, and because Tommy and I know each other, and I say, "Hey, yeah, Legion McCorkle's a good dude. He's going to come up and he's going to play a solo show. Can we hook him up?" Tommy doesn't say, "Send me some links." Right. Tom, Tommy doesn't say, uh, "Yeah, let me know who else I can get together, and then we'll see if it, he doesn't do any of that stuff." Yeah. Because we, because there's a community there, and Absolutely. you go, "I'm not going to send you somebody who's going to not show up, or who's going to be an asshole, oh, sure. or who's going to be unprofessional or not good." Yeah. You know. Um, Taste is one thing. Yeah. But if somebody shows up and they do their thing well and they're on time and they're respectful and they're kind, like, there is room for that and more. Oh, sure. um, In every scene I've ever been a part of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're exceptionally lucky that we're part of the scene in Lansing. Um, As I started, like, when I started playing bass, I hadn't been in bands and probably, oh God, I don't know how many years. Many, many, many years, let's just say. <laughs> 15 years, 10 years, oh, something wow. like that. It was, it was I guess I didn't realize it had been that big a break, Jenny. It was a huge break. Okay. And I had done a little music with um, with Jeff Gower. Um, we had done some, you know, some stuff together that was, that was fun where I got the opportunity to sing, but I didn't have, you know, the venue, the avenue, the, the band that I needed, and... And, well, uh, and you didn't have anything that was yours. Yeah, it was. I really need. I really wanted that. Uh, that membership in a band, and I wanted that. And I just wanted to learn how to play, frankly. And when when I getting back to the community point, like as soon as I started playing in Scary Women and playing an instrument, I was just utterly terrified to do it, to get on stage and try and play bass and try and sing. And do this music that I was, and just 
be a performer. Now, had you been scared when you were just singing before, when you were just a vocalist? Yeah, but not not to the degree. So in other of words, in other words, the previously it had been maybe garden variety stage fright. Yeah, exactly. And then it morphed into something. Once you threw in the idea of playing an instrument and yeah. singing, it kind of ratcheted everything up to another level. And at that point, I was also at such a different age that I wanted different things too. As a musician, I and, wanted different and, things for myself as a musician. And, and do you think you had different levels of expectation? Maybe. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Very, so there's another there's another benefit and, of that shiny and dumb being young thing. Yeah. Like you're supposed to not be good at it. Whereas now, if you're if you're yeah. a 38 year old woman playing bass yeah. in, a, in a punk band, the 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 conventional wisdom would be, oh, she's done this for 20 years. Right. Right, and that doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just that that is sort of the accepted path. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and and I found that this community in Lansing was, I couldn't have found a more supportive, generous, kind community than here. I, I'm, it's just, in, it's amazing to me it's, to this day. I mean, even like I still have that same fear and kind of a, like sense of being an imposter or something, or not really knowing what I'm doing. And every damn time we play a show, it's like just the feeling of community from everyone and that support that you get is just invaluable. And I really never experienced it to this degree until I moved to Lansing. And that's one of the I reasons would, I live here. Absolutely. I would I would say in having kind of been involved in any number of scenes and in what I mean by that is playing you know more than just one show and ducking in into a community and then yeah. out you know so having gone to cities large and small and played two three four five sometimes more times I mean we mm-hmm. I I think other than Lansing and and Detroit I don't think we've played any other city more than we've played Chicago for example yeah you know but that doesn't mean that I understand the scene in Chicago because that city's so big Oh gosh, that but, scene is so sprawling and But if I go play five shows in Columbus, I have a pretty good idea what's going on there. Yeah, sure. If I go play three shows in Pittsburgh, I have a pretty good you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, half a dozen times in Milwaukee. We we know what's going on there. And what I will and, and what I will say is that Lansing, for its weight class, mm-hmm. outpunches everyone. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Both in terms of, of the way the community at large comes out to support shows. Yep. And in the way that people within the community support each other. Oh, yes. Uh, indeed. And the only thing I think that's really missing from our scene is just there there aren't quite enough places to play. Yeah. Um, there is a there is a shortage right now. There's a bottleneck of venues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a I think that's probably the thing keeping us from maybe maybe again, like we were talking about earlier, ratcheting up. Yeah. It's kind of I don't know what leveling up looks like, but you know there are a couple of things that have just opened or yeah, are opening exactly. in town. So it'll be interesting. And that's to see exciting. How, it's super exciting. It'll be interesting yeah. to see how those go throughout the kind of the school year coming up. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting with that is in a town like Lansing, you know, most of that stuff has to come in from outside. Right. You know, it's not stuff from the region. It's national touring acts and things like that. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how that breaks down in those venues. And I think yeah. that's, you know, I mean, uh, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about a club in Grand Rapids that holds, you know, 400 people-ish. Yeah. That they've got a very kind of a, an interesting niche. And that's mm-hmm. a, you know, there there are a handful of clubs out there that are doing that at that three to 500 level. 
And I really hope that that is what's going to happen here because yeah, the, in, in a town this size, that's really what we need. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but in, I got a little, a little tangent there, but I just am so impressed at the longevity of the people here too. Oh, definitely. Like, yep. It's, and it's not just like, oh, it's just a bunch of old salts and it's all cranky uh-huh. old men. Like it kind of regenerates. It kind of, you see new people oh coming in all the time. Thinking of the Avenue in particular, which is, you know, I think a home base for a lot of people and just an amazing, wonderful club with a incredible owner, Colleen Kelly, who just yes is a heartwarming and wonderful person. Um, and speaking of supportive, I mean, I'm, yes. oh my gosh, she's just a pillar in so many ways. Um, and not just in terms of the music community, but just taking care of people. Yeah, I, yeah, I the, the Avenue is really not just person. a really wonderful venue. It's a really welcoming space. Yes, and, and it's the it's it's kind of a, they there's an open door policy. And the young people there now. I mean, I say this as a someone who just turned forty seven. So right. there's there's that to bear in mind. But for me, young people, that's, <laughs> that's it's a, it's that's the majority of them. It's a so. it's a lot of people that are frequenting that club, especially on the weekends. Yeah, in their twenties. It's so even exciting. early to mid twenties, like you know, not much past legal drinking age. Yeah, and, and they for stay a long time that was unheard they... of. Yep. in the live music community in these yep. parts, um, it's really great unless you were it. doing a specific kind of thing. You know, I think that mm-hmm. the there's a big hip hop movement here in town. Yeah, that's really vibrant, and that has a big youth movement to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so there's. You know, there's some of that. And then I think there's some of the same thing with maybe some of the electronic stuff that's going on. But that's yeah. not a world that I live in much. Yeah. So I don't see that. Um, but it's really wonderful. Like, I'm starting to, as much as I'm not starting to see new young bands as much as I would mm-hmm. like, I'm starting to see people coming out to shows. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it, it feels like less of a, oh, this is just the last vestiges of this generation doing this thing. Oh, no, not at all. feels a little more... Um, a little more contemporary, like it's evolving a little bit. It's, it's yeah, incredibly fluid. It's yeah. really, um, and seeing the new bands, the new young bands that are out there right now, I, it's it's exhilarating. Like they're they're so good and they're so interesting and committed. And a lot of them, not all of them certainly, but some of them have a real politic that I think is exceptionally important you know and and like i was having this conversation yeah. with um uh one of the early uh episodes of the show i did with an author named jared yade sexton who's a historian and he and i uh-huh. were talking about um we were talking about protest and you know about the idea of politics and how to get involved and yeah. and he and i sort of hit upon this idea of like where were the protest songs for the trump era hmm. right as he put it Trump gets elected and we don't get a clash. And oh, I think I think to a certain extent he's kind of right. And I'm sure that those things were out there, uh-huh. but there it doesn't feel to me like that they were as sort of macro culture. Now maybe that's just yeah. the time, but it even seems like within that world, if there had been kind of like an anthem, it would have run through those sort of, you know, within those progressive circles or whatever. And there sure. wasn't anything. Yeah. You know, I mean there was some activism. But there wasn't really any work that came out of it. Right. I guess this is sort of my long-winded way of asking, do you think what you're talking about is maybe finally kind of starting to see yes. what what I was hoping for? It just took longer than I expected. I Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because I think that the... I think a lot of the music that we're seeing now, and I say this cautiously just because I don't want to overgeneralize by any means. Of course. Um, is in response to, you know, the politic, American politics in a lot of ways over the uh, past. Every, I mean, every act is political, right? Yeah. I mean, I, and I would, I should preface any, most things I say by saying, for me, pretty much everything's political. I, yeah, I mean, you and I are, by that. You, you and I are, <laughs> you and I are on the same so. page. Yeah. So for me, like seeing the, seeing being in a scene that is, I believe to be, and the way I define political, um, being active and being more, more, more so than being political, I guess that's such a, a problematic term. It's a very caring, very. Um, aware community i would say i would say um aware of people who are you know in need people who need community people who need support i think that's i kind of guess because i'm really corny but kind of like i sound like uh who's that candidate that marianne williamson or whatever her name oh is. yeah yeah that's yeah. her but like a kind of politics of caring Yes. Yes. That's such a dumb. Well, I I mean, I mean, I do think, but it's true though. I think there's, and I don't, and I don't want to draw, you know, (laughs) sort of hard political divisions based on stereotypes, but Mm -hmm. I I do think largely it comes down to empathy. Yeah. You know, I mean, you either have it or you don't, and you can learn it, but someone has to teach it to you, and And, you have to be willing to learn it. Yep. And for whatever reason, the people who make music are just naturally more empathetic. Because they're people who are empathetic of what they're going through and what other people are going through. And then they're taking that and they're regurgitating however they feel about it, whatever they see. And then they're mm-hmm. putting that back out into the world in a way almost to make themselves understand it. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, that's kind of the beauty of any work of art. Yeah. Is that it ought to be something that taught the person who looked at it and the person who made it. Yeah, for And sure. if it's really fundamentally great, it will keep doing that over time. Yeah. And, you know... Um, it will be like that film that you can watch an eighth time and find some new layer of genius yeah, in it, sure. you know? Sure. Um, so, I mean, this is actually a wonderful segue. We started talking about all of the sort of the youth in these bands. Mm-hmm. How do you think what you've seen in the music community translates to your quote unquote day job yeah. teaching young people? Um, well, the first thing I would say is that the young people that I teach, I am always and consistently impressed by i am in this also in the same ways that i see with the young people in our scene that they're thoughtful they're extremely thoughtful not just in the sense of i mean in the literal sense of the word they think about things more in i think in, sometimes in more depth absolutely in more depth and in wider ranges than we give them credit for and do you think, some, I mean, I think some of that is that emotional intelligence we were just talking about. Too, yeah. That it's not just, I'm thoughtful in the sense of I'm being um, careful about what I say, uh-huh. or I'm trying to be super intelligent about what I say. Yeah. It's, I want to make sure that I'm hearing this person yes. and that what I'm saying truly conveys how I feel instead of yeah. saying it flippantly. And there they're thoughtful also in the sense of being inquisitive and engaged. I mean, 
Genuine and, curiosity? Yeah. And you don't always, and uh, yeah, this sounds very, um, a very kind of uh, shiny, happy way of talking about teaching. And it's not always that way. I mean, oh. half the time you're looking at your students thinking, why, why do they hate me so much? <laughs> you know? But they, it turns out they don't. And they really, when you talk to them, they have just incredible ideas. Like, I always have them write papers. As, yes, I teach English and Shakespeare and literature, so that's, that's my, my, my thing. And they turn in these papers after not necessarily being very expressive all semester and, in, you know, outwardly engaging. Then they'll turn in these brilliant papers on, like, the fluidity of time in Murakami. And Murakami's oh novel, A Wild Sheep Chase, or something, you know. And even outside of the actual work that they turn in, the conversations I've had with my students, I've just been blown away by how much more in tune with the world they are than I was at that age. They, and I guess that's part of what I mean by thoughtful. And also critical, like critical in, in the most positive sense of the word. They turn a critical eye on things in ways I think is exceptionally important. Less blindly accepting maybe oh, than yeah. previous generations. Definitely. And and, and okay, I see even in now there okay. is a cynicism to that too. I I understand, oh, yeah. but like, oh, yeah. but it's also I mean, what? It, okay, so what's the what's the blurry line between self preservation and cynicism? Yeah. Right. So we're talking about these reactions from a political era that, mm -hmm. you know, for kids who are going to be your students this fall. Yeah. You know, when the Trump era starts in 2015, uh, they're 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. They've they've known this more than they haven't. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm not necessarily I don't mean to sound like I'm blaming Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that. What I mean is that we've had a different rancor a different level of political yes. discourse and and violence frankly Definitely, absolutely. and that has a cultural cost and it's affected segments definitely i would say it's affected students period but i mean not not just i mean just yeah the political violence and the well these are i mean these are children growing up in in an era where school shootings are almost daily exactly. occurrence and um these are these are kids who all have friends who are either gay or bi or trans yeah and they're seeing that community be absolutely just ravaged yeah um it has to take a toll right it takes a toll on them for sh absolutely and i have i've had cases with individual students that have been very upsetting the students being afraid to come to campus, you know, these types oh, of things. It's just really, I think that level of kind of acute awareness of the world around them has made them critical in a healthy way. And in a, in a mature, they have a maturity, I think, that they don't often get credit for. Um, do you so, and I don't again I don't want to speak in generalizations. No, but... no, but but again it's 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 anecdotal. You're making you're making yeah. observations about your experience and what I think is you know what I think is truly interesting here is we are talking about the same group of kids basically and you're talking about look at looking at that community from two different angles and two different subsets. Uh -huh. You know, there's the one that is these are the kids who are in a band 
or they yeah. they go out to the bar or they they work in the service industry. Sure. And then there's the kids who are in college and then there's the small group that maybe is both, right? Yeah. And what I'm what I'm really interested in is even if they don't do the same thing, where what are the commonalities? Like hmm. I think this yeah. this idea of sort of a more thoughtful and empathetic generation. Yeah. Um, because my kids are roughly speaking right this age contemporary, a tiny bit older than some of your than your students, a few sure. years, but part of the same sort of the same generation of kids. Yeah. And I see that too. Yeah. And it's it's hard to tell and be objective about your own kids. Oh yeah. You know, of but course. like uh I I see them being more um protective. They advocate yes. faster. Yep. Than I would have at that age. Yep. Yep. I think they have, for lack of a better term, a kind of political awareness that I know. You, again, I know political. I keep using that word, and I, I'm using it kind of loosely, but, but I think they, they have an awareness of what goes on in this world, that again, I think, when I was that age, I was simply. Blind to, um, and. It makes them more caring, like you said, more empathetic. And I don't know. They're just, they're I very I almost think there is a, there's been an erosion of faith in institutions enough mm-hmm. where this is the first generation where they've shown up and said, no, we're not going to take any of this stuff for granted because you yeah. keep failing to keep your promises. Right. You know, the the example that I look at is, like, I, I can remember, you know, I'm only a few years older than you, and I can remember being in high school and, like, having conversations with people and knowing that, like, no. Like, yeah, the the pro-life movement, they, the right-to-life movement is what it is, but they're never going to overturn Roe. Right. Like, that's never going to happen. Yeah, sure. No, 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 no. We're not going to, the Voting Rights Act is not going to get struck down. That's not going to happen. Right. And then boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And these kids, again, because they've lived a bunch of their lives in this era of sort of aggressive yes. removal of rights. Um, and chaos. And chaos. And and complete destruction of norms and, mm-hmm. again, institutions. Yeah. And so I kind of wonder if that's part of where that advocacy comes from because there mm-hmm. is this innate understanding of like, nope, all this other stuff that these old people have been counting on their whole lives – yeah. I don't believe that shit for a second. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. They're very, in my opinion, like willing to grasp at new ideas in ways that I find really phenomenal. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I guess that's a one of the most satisfying things about teaching for sure. How do, how do you feel like when your kids come in? I mean, I realize, again, you don't want to make a generalization of yeah, your students, sure, right? Sure. But generally speaking, what is their level of cultural awareness when they when they arrive? These are mostly for yeah, you freshmen sure. and sophomores, right? So mostly these are freshmen and sophomores. These are 18, yeah. 19, maybe 20-year-old yeah. students. These are young students. I'm really curious what their cultural worldview looks like. It's I couldn't begin to tell you. I'll be quite honest. Okay. Um, I only see kind of glimpses of it through conversations and through their paper writing and through discussions. Okay. Um, 
I can't imagine. I I just I can't imagine what it is to be in the head of a a nineteen year old right now. And don't want to be. Nope. No. Got no got no desire, no interest. Yeah, but I think they, like I said, I think they 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 have they show a willingness to attach themselves to kind of philosophical ideas in ways that surprise me. Like the literature, a lot of the literature that I teach has a kind of philosophical bent to it or a political bent to it. And they're much more willing to take that up than I expected for some of the things um, that I teach. Meaning that they're accepting of uh, th- th- that conceit without they're without feeling like a, there's an agenda behind it? Yeah, and they're accepting of critiques of the modern world that they... It's like they know it already. It's like if I talk to them, for instance, let me give a more concrete example. Yeah. Um, in my classes, I teach a lot of post-colonial theory. And part of post-colonialism, and I, I'm certainly, this is, I'm not going to give you a thumbnail sketch of post-colonial theory because I'll embarrass myself. But the thing that I focus most on is this notion of the self and the other. And this idea kind of stems from the notion that when I, as the self, let's say, encounter someone of a different culture, there's the danger of othering them because I'm identifying in them differences that make them other from me, right? Right. But this has incredibly dangerous, massively dangerous, violent implications to think in those ways. Think about colonialism in general, like Absolutely. specifically, right? You know, um, the, it's notion the entire of, basis of slavery. It's the entire basis of, of yeah, dehumanizing by by yeah. by othering, right? And so this is a thing that I teach in every single class, every class, no matter if it's modern literature or British literature or Shakespeare. It doesn't make any difference. I teach it no matter what, um, because of the fact that there's you know so much otherings in our culture, you know, and they are again, acutely aware of those things. Like, they, they, they'll, they'll recognize that concept and say, oh, God, I've, I've done that. I've, I've othered someone. Or, right. or I see examples of this everywhere. You know, they see, they see the kind of theories that I'm trying to teach that, in motion, it's in that, action. It's that sort of little, like, personal awakening of, Oh, this is this is not abstract. I'm doing this. I'm doing this, and also this is a world that I have to navigate of of um, the prejudices that spring from. And it's very it's very easy to just tune that out. Exactly. First of all, to see it as simply academic, right? Seeing seeing, you know the self-other distinction as a self other binary that doesn't really have application yeah. to the real world. And that's you know, why I teach it is to say, well, this is something that we take part in and Well and that's and that I think that's why um at least for me that's that's why literature is endlessly fascinating because mm-hmm. it essentially it wraps up all of that stuff together. It's all yeah. it's cultural, it's philosophical, it's historical. Yeah. Any great work of art, whether it's written down or sung or mm-hmm. projected on a screen, should have some kind of way to sort of like it's an alchemy of all that shit. 
Yeah. Right? Um, do you feel like that when your ki- it sounds like when your kids come in, they're ready to, like, they're excited to accept that? Yes. I would say that's generally, generally the case. Yeah, that they, I think sometimes they're kind of taken aback by what they view as a kind of political approach to teaching literature, maybe. Um, okay. But again, they... Well, again, you're you're basically taking kids who are going from, here is state-mandated curriculum for the most part, uh-huh. maybe some AP stuff. Yeah. But for the kids, you have largely not AP English. Yeah. Some, but not largely. Yeah, sure. Um, so for many of them, this is the first time they've really been challenged to read critically and look at the world critically. And and that's the whole point of, for me, the classes I teach is not, not necessarily that they're going to walk away and say, well, for the love of God, like this is not my goal, that they walk away and are able to quote Shakespeare. I could give a shit about right. that. What I care about is that they walk away critical thinkers and that Shakespeare was the, the text that we use to make them think critically about notions of anti-Semitism that, were prevalent in the early modern period that we see now, you know, and how we other people of, you know, how Shakespeare's characters other other characters and how we, you know, see that replicated and, um, and write it, so, and write all that down in the most beautiful language that has ever existed in human history. Somehow. Yeah, and that's um, a big hurdle to overcome with them. Not not just the language, but the well, you're the adoration. Or not the ad, more the, f- and you're trying to abject fear of Shakespeare in a lot of ways, but yeah, and you're also you're also trying to build a five hundred year bridge, yeah, and and just get them over that belief that Shakespeare is inaccessible to them because it's such a classist. That's a bullshit argument. Bullshit argument. It's a bullshit argument. And there's wonderful books written about this that I won't go into. There's a really great book called Political Shakespeare, though. By the way, that's speaks to this point oh i will put that in the show notes oh it's it's really important like it, it talks about the ways in which shakespeare is used as a kind of marker of cultural cultural capital sure which is absolutely the case and so when you have students who are facing down a shakespeare course they're terrified of the language they're terrified of the topic they're terrified of you know the fact that they have to confront this the most celebrated of all western authors you know. And isn't and it? It's such. It's just. It's awful. It's like it just builds this huge wall between them. It's and unfair both learning. to the student and to the work, in a way. Yeah. I mean, you're building up. You're building up an expectation. I mean, essentially, you're building up a cultural expectation that you're not going to like this. And also that they're going to only find beauty and sweetness and light, according to Matthew Arnold in in Shakespeare. It's like, no, you're going to find racism and you're going to find misogyny and you're going to find anti-Semitism and you're going to find all kinds of shit that is, oh God, just so problematic. Rape and slavery Rape and piracy and, and, and dick it. jokes and oh yeah, and, all of it. And you can Incest make it, and murder and... And you can make the argument that Shakespeare resolves those problems. I do not adhere to that at all, but... Um, I also don't think that's the job and I don't think of the my writer. Students do either. I, I don't think my students, they don't, I, I hope they walk away from the class, and I think they, my Shakespeare classes in any case, and literature classes in general, knowing they can be critical of what they're reading and critical and take that critical eye 
and turn it on the world. Like that's what I want more than anything and, else. And be willing, and maybe this is a generation well poised for this based on the things that you said. Mm. Be willing yeah. to say, okay, if this is great, show me. Right. But I'm not just going to walk in yes. and go, this is great because you told me to. Because it's Shakespeare and it's, or it's literature right. with a capital L or it's, you know, some canonical author that they feel right. they, that they have been forced to revere. It's a little ways, bit like, you know, uh, you know that, that friend who, uh, you know, will talk about a specific film. Yeah. And he will talk about it, you know, six ways to Sunday. <laughs> right. In my case, it's my brother-in-law, and he will insist up and down that Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made. Sure. And I will sit here and say, no, it's one of the most important films ever made. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's not that great, because that's my... And I need to watch it again, and I'm sure I'll catch hell for saying this on a podcast, but anyway. Um, I just rewatched it. But, and, but the point yeah. is... I can acknowledge that it's important and that it, yes. it, that it has pieces of greatness. Oh, yeah. And that Greg Toland, the cinematographer in that film, is a fucking genius uh-huh. and basically invented half of what you and I think of as cinematography. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have to sit down on a Saturday afternoon and enjoy it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so your kids yep. can know uh, this is why Shylock is important for three different reasons. Right. And this is why this story is important. Right. But you don't have to dig it. And you and they should be critical of it. Like if they're yes. being thoughtful readers, they should be critical of what they're what they're seeing in these texts and and I I think that's part of one of the reasons I most enjoy and find satisfaction in teaching Shakespeare is allowing just Ripping him down from his pedestal for heaven's sakes, and letting giving students like access to him rather than feeling like they're you know trudging up some hill to try and understand well, everything. And the language makes it so hard. I mean, there's no, no and no artist that, should but... be untouchable, right? Right, including Shakespeare. Exactly. I mean, like I don't care if you're Shakespeare or Da Vinci mm-hmm. or Michelangelo. Like, right. There are going to be better days than others. Yeah. And there's going to be better work. And there's going to be times where somebody else said or wrote or painted or sang that idea better than you did. Right. Right. You know, um, we've all had that moment where we're like, I want to write that song or I want to have that. And you're like, that's already been done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so you you either find a way to do it in your own voice. Right. A different way or you move on. Right. Um, Do you think. Do you think your kids are uh, are able to take those lessons that you teach them about Shakespeare and that idea of critical thinking and critical reading? Mm-hmm. Do you think, largely, do you think they're taking those things forward? I mean, you don't have a way to test it, but... There's, it's so hard to know. I hope so, I guess, is the most I can say. I mean, that's sort of why you do what you do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. A lot of... I've had a fair amount of students who have asked me after classes or even during classes for more text by a particular author or what are my favorite books what do they okay what should they read sure which is always really tough because it's like yeah because you don't want you don't want to you know you don't want to double down too hard yeah but at the same time you should read this uh, 600 page sprawling postmodern epic you know yeah you don't want to you don't want to be like hey here's uh here's roberto bolaño yeah here's here's ishiguru is now consoled good luck yeah uh 
What's the giant Murakami? Nineteen eighty four. The the one Q eight four. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's almost impenetrable. I mean, I, I love at, it. But. I mean, I looked at that when it came out. Like, I went to like Schuler's, the local bookstore here, uh-huh. and I saw. You know, they had like forty copies of it, and I was like, was like looking at like looking at a volume. concrete block. It's a yeah. It's three volumes, and I'm like, nope, nope. I did it. I did it. I'm I, proud of you. I adore. This is why Pretty you much everything Murakami. I don't think this I've is ever why you touched. have a PhD and I have an associate's <laughs> degree. <laughs> But, um, yeah, how do you incredible. feel like your love of literature and the way that you teach it uh-huh. informs the way that you make music and specifically the way that you write? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, well, even just the name of the band that I'm in now is clearly very literary, literature influence. And the band's called a rueful noise for heaven's sakes. And rueful is not a word you you're bandied around too often. No. And the way that I discovered it was I went through an anthology of the late Victorian literature, no, uh, post-romantic or some crap, I have no idea, <laughs> and just found random weird-ass sounding words. Oh, okay. And, or very romantic but dark kind of sounding words. And and so that wound up being our title or our band name, A Rueful Noise. And it, it just, it wound up fitting really well. It sounds we have like, have you ever seen those lists kind of, of uh, like psychiatric conditions from like yeah. 1850s <laughs> London, you know? Yes. Um, you know, it sounds like one of those. Oh, he made yeah. a rueful noise. We had to, we had to imprison him for six weeks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like, so, like somehow his tenement had uh, an association. They had, to, they had to crack down on him. One of Hannah's favorite ones is, uh, that she saw one of those, and they referred to uh, depression as the morbs oh, for like morbidity. Nice. And uh, so she, yeah, so if one of us is feeling blue around the house, th- yeah, the there morbs. will be a case of the morbs. <laughs> I think the my love for literature and teaching literature very much informs my, my lyric writing, absolutely. Um, and you wrote you wrote lyrics throughout your time yeah. in bands right so oh yeah this is not so so the like we talked about how yeah. you started playing bass late mm-hmm. and doing that but you'd yeah. been you'd been writing lyrically yeah. speaking not musically but you've been writing lyrically from the beginning oh definitely okay definitely so and now obviously you're writing full songs not just lyrics and melodies you're writing full things and then bringing yeah. them to the band um and you're you're currently in a band with your husband my husband yes how is that it is awesome I could not be happier because he is so incredibly supportive and will listen to me play the same Jason Isbell song badly for hours and not <laughs> not lose his shit like any mortal would. Like he's just he's uh, he's a very very exceptionally supportive man. This is why man. I have a shed, Jenny. So that I can come out here and I have 196 square feet to do that shit by myself, so I don't bother. My yeah, family. and he. Um, That's great. Not not to be too corny, but he, I mean, he's taught me a tremendous amount. But you're able he's to find a an way. Exceptional musician. That's awesome. Yeah. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but like you've, no, I was just kind of leading you to, you've you've found a way to navigate. That's not an easy thing. No. And no. we, it's funny. We know a handful of couples who do it quite well. Yeah. 
you know, uh, Wild Honey, Ladyship Warship, just to name a couple. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, but that is a difficult, that is a difficult dynamic. Tricky. I have, yeah. I have worked with my wife. Yeah, yeah. Not musically, but at, 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 our, at my business. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do. It can get touchy, like, but it, it's so worth it in so many ways. I was thinking of an example. Um, we're recording an album right now and with uh, Jason Rodell from Anvil Crawler and Jack Pine Snag, who is exceptional. It, it, it's just going so well. We could not be happier with it. And we were listening back through the tracks, and Nicholas was like, and this is an example of when things get a little like, oh, really, as you're working together in a band. And he was like, well, you know, everything sounds amazing. You know, there's this one thing, though, that I'd kind of like you to retrack. And my first thought was, oh, well, listen to you. Oh, really? (laughs) I'm like, well, I think you should do this part. It's like, oh my god! So there's a certain amount of like, of um, ego. I mean, ego comes with being uh, a musician, and it's a, a lizard, it's a lizard brain gets thing. a little like, oh, yeah, you know. Um, and then I get over it immediately because he is like, as I've said, Nicholas, this Nicholas Murs, um, my husband, is really genuinely, and I say this with complete bias. Probably the one of the most talented musicians I know, just wow. uh, that I've ever not just that I know, I mean that I've been around. You know, I mean, he's just, um, he's so good. And you're also fortunate in that, in that Todd, your drummer, yeah, is also incredibly kind incredibly and supportive, kind and, and absolutely um, one of my best friends. And like this kind of, and I'm not just kind of trying to stroke egos here, oh. but it kind of gets back to what we were talking about about. That what's at the core of this is relationships and community and family yeah. and yeah and that the the way that music is changing the lives of the people that you and I know and spend time with is in a really like much more deeply fundamental way than I think any of us on the surface realize yeah, yeah. um you know I I have this conversation a lot with with people that I know and and people that I talk to on the show. Mm-hmm. And that is that there's this real loneliness crisis going on. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who are sort of disaffected and they mm-hmm. don't have a tribe. And you and I are super lucky. Oh, my gosh. Yes, um, indeed. Because if you find a th- and that's why I keep telling the, my kids, mm-hmm. find a thing. Yeah. Find a thing. Double down on it. That thing will lead to people. That Th- those to. people will lead yep. to a rich life. Yeah. And when shit goes south, you know, as it has for for you in the past and me in the present. Mm-hmm. When shit goes south, you've got a big, a big old net of people to, oh, to yeah. count on. Absolutely, who can provide a whole bunch of different levels and means of support. Yep, and it's it's really incredible. And it's and especially like, like I was saying with you know bands I've played in, saying you know having that closeness to them, even though there's people who I haven't seen in decades. I think that's just really, especially like with the band I'm in now with. You know, one of my best friends who I talk to every day and just think is an extraordinary person Um, and a fucking killer drummer. Yeah. Just a killer drummer. I'm kind of, like, I'm kind of, uh, I kind of think part of my job in having these conversations with people who get to do what we get to do is to remind them that we get to do this. Oh, I know, yeah. Like, 
it's it's hard. It takes a lot of time and a lot of mm. effort, and there's a lot of unanswered emails and a lot of disappointment and shitty shows. Oh sure, but we all keep doing it because yeah. it, it fills a part of us that nothing else fills. Yeah, there's but a joy there what, that you but, just but largely yeah. what that is is those people. Yeah, and and it's it's knowing that there's a there's a transparency to it. Mm-hmm. There is yeah. a, there is a, yeah. we are in a bullshit free zone. Yep. Every I'm ne- yep. I always say I'm never more in the moment than when I'm on stage playing the song. Yeah. And that can, that stage can be Ian's basement at Stick Around's practice. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, definitely. But I'm, I'm in the moment. I'm not thinking about other shit. Right. And it's also, you know, when you're, you're, at least I feel this way as a musician, especially when you're performing, maybe just because I have a lot of anxiety about performing in general but there's a vulnerability to being a musician for sure you're especially when you're playing your own songs when you're playing your own songs absolutely um and you're like for me with nicholas and todd you know nicholas has been in so many really incredible bands and todd as well and you know i've said this in the past but you know to me both of them are just total rock stars like they're rock stars right and echelon that I'm you know working towards one day type type of thing and so the opportunity to work with them not just as like people that I'm so close to but the fact that we're able to make music together it's just such an amazing privilege like we're we practice in at our house at my Nicholas's house and we're recording the album at our house and it's just constant music. It's just, uh, and it's wonderful. you have uh, sort of a wide array of friends from the music community who kind of come by and yeah. pass in and out. And yep. that can look any number of different ways. It might uh-huh. be a quiet dinner. I mean, I had dinner at your house not long ago with uh, you guys and, and our mutual friend Dave. And yeah. it can be that or it can be eight people hanging out in the basement and, you know, half the people are jamming. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that whether it's your house or uh, the GTG house, yeah, or, yeah, you know, uh, any number of other Absolutely. places in and around town, sure, there are these sort of little enclaves where people can kind of, it's welcoming. Yeah, there's a there's an expectation that it's a musical environment. And oh, definitely. Again, it goes back to that whole idea of sort of an open door community policy. And I'm glad you mentioned GTG House as well as um, Displaced Manor too in town. Oh yeah, it's thank you for mentioning really, that. Really, really wonderful venue. Um, incredibly kind people who run it and very very welcoming. The fact that they invite people into their home to put on these really killer shows. I mean. They got great lights. They have great sound. Just dedication. They've literally to the scene. dedicated their entire basement to this venue. Oh, it's just and it's exceptional. It's a great place to play. They have wonderful bands. Um, so that's another example of you know, even outside of the kind of the, our major venues that there's there's just right. always music going on somewhere. I mean, it's well, I was thinking about yeah, it too. Like you're going um, to you, and or, or, you and I had you and I had very similar experiences this week. At different cure shows, <laughs> yeah, where we paid, well, you paid a lot of money, and I, I paid not very much money, but, <laughs> uh, but then you got to pay to park, and you got to pay a bazillion dollars to get food and get sure. a beer, and you got to drive there, and you got to drive home, and like, 
I guarantee you, no matter where somebody is listening to this right now, uh-huh. within a half an hour of their house, somebody sometime soon is putting some kind of shindig together. Yeah. In a coffee shop, in an art gallery, a oh, barn, yeah. a basement, a bar. I don't care. There's so much music around Find here. it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And if you don't like it, don't think that it all sounds like that because right. it doesn't. <clears throat> and there's such a, like you were saying earlier about, you know, different kind of musical communities. I I am only, a, you know, have awareness of just the one that I partake in. And, and that's a really unfortunate thing on my part because I know there's so many other genres and right. you know, musicians in this town playing in places that I'm not aware of and um so that's something I need to be you know more open to but the fact it just feels like there's always music playing in this town um I mean this is I looked it up the other day the the, the 2020 census says there's 117,000 people uh-huh. in the city of Lansing this does not culturally speaking does not feel like a town of 100,000 people no I mean, it really, yeah. it really, well, I shouldn't say culturally speaking, because as I've joked about on this podcast, uh, this is the worst restaurant town in the entire Midwest per capita. It's just the fucking worst. <laughs> it's terrible. I hate it. But the music scene's incredible. Yes. And I'm, and I'm kind of, again, to go back to that idea of like not taking it for granted. Yeah. Like, it's really easy for that to atrophy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, even a really vibrant scene depends so much on just a handful of people. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so it's movers and shakers and a handful of bands, a venue owner like Colleen, a couple of bookers mm-hmm. like Tommy, um, you know, a couple of little things. And some tiny little change can make a massive oh, yeah. sea change for better or for worse in a community. What's really incredible is... You can go and have an experience like you and I had at The Cure where yeah. you you go and you spend your money and it's whatever it is and it's totally worth it. Sure. But you can also go out and see a band and pay five bucks. And have just and an amazing talk to time. those people. And here's the thing. Don't even go. Just skulk around on Facebook for a while. Yeah. Or talk to your friends or look at... Uh, Stuff on Instagram by your location. Mm-hmm. Find stuff that seems interesting and then just go try it. Yeah. You know, or find somebody that you know who, who's into it. Sure. And ask them to be your Sherpa. <laughs> right. You know, but like, I I mean, I can't think of anything in my life that's been more enriching in terms of, of an investment that I've made than learning how to play music and having yeah. the courage to be in a band. Yes. Yep. Yep. And one thing I've, I've found also is that there's a lot of Detroit bands that we've played with who really want to get to Lansing. It's funny. And I love that. I just think that is the coolest thing because they, I think, you know, I think Lansing is recognized as a, as a city with a, with a scene that people want to be a part Mm -hmm. of. And it's, I think that's just really a wonderful development. It's yeah. also that it's also interesting that it's not a homogenous scene too. Mm-hmm. You know, even as recently as you know, five or six years ago, I would have said, predominantly speaking, this was a town where if you wanted to play a show, chances were overwhelming you were going to wind up on a punk bill. Yeah. Okay. Sure. There was a time ten years before that where instead of punk, you could have just inserted alt country. Yeah. And I was a part of that movement. Sure, sure. Then in the punk thing, I was like. I was in a power pop band uh-huh. that could play with those bands, but it never really fit. Sure. 
And that is now changing as well. Oh, definitely. You the know, bills uh, now are fantastic. It's, it's there's Such a and not and I don't want to sound like I'm shitting on punk, but like uh-huh. that diversity is an asset. It's something that oh, is yeah. a welcome change, I think, to our community. Definitely. And it's it's been a really nice kind of change in that. I I wonder if that has been part of the process about bringing about a younger crowd and a more diverse yeah, crowd. Definitely. To kind of fold that back in. Um, it sounds to me like, like really your experience, both in terms of playing shows and 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 in teaching has been one of the, the, this is really a generation kind of built on sort of openness and acceptance. Yeah. Um, yep. And, and I think the reason that I guess I'm kind of leading you in that direction is because uh, I sort of feel like that's what makes the scene in Lansing beautiful. Yeah. To kind Absolutely. of tie it all together is that oh, yeah. there is this sort of, uh, you know, open eyes and full hearts kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I am so thrilled that, uh, that you are a part of my musical and literal family. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I love it, Jenny. Thanks it. for doing this. Oh, I love it too. Thank you. It was fun. There she goes. My dear friend, my sister, Dr. Jennifer Toms. Thank you so much to Jenny for being here. Thank you to you for pressing play. I appreciate all of your support and uh, all of your feedback. Please make sure that you are uh, subscribed over at whatamimaking.substack.com. You can sign up for a free subscription, but boy, a paid subscription or a founding membership would be even better, so go over there and do that today. Don't forget to go over and get your tickets for my house shows, which are on sale now. Phonofourrecords.com slash house hyphen shows. You can also go over to phonofourrecords.com slash shop. You can buy the new Harbor Coat CD, which comes out on June 30th. It's also going to be available on streaming. And uh, you can pick up some T-shirts and some other swag that will help make my tour a possibility. Uh, again, I do have Venmo and PayPal. Reach out to me at whatamimakingatsubstack.com if that's a way that you'd rather support the show than a membership through Substack. Um, thank you again to everybody. Reach out to me at speakpipe.com slash whatamimaking. Leave me a message. Let me know what you're interested in, what you're making, what you want to discuss. I will have lots more for you very soon. Until then, my friends, I will see you on the other side. Be well. See that there? That there, right there. That there was a production of Mattis C and his ADHD. That right there was. You just heard it.